Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the way in which you've revealed yourself that allows us to take the passages that might be less clear to us and to understand them aright. We pray that as we handle your word once again, that you would bless it to us, that you would guide us by your spirit, so that above all, we would see the glory of your saving work in Jesus Christ. And so would you hear us, we pray in his name, amen. Okay, so um, what we've been doing is following uh, the second head of doctrine that talked about limited atonement. We've been dealing with some of those passages in scripture that people have looked to and said, now does that passage really teach limited atonement? Um, and sometimes uh, we've done that from passages that say Jesus died for the world. And that's kind of what we tackled last time. Um, and so what we want to do this time um, is talk about those passages that, that say Christ died for all or for all men. Because there are some passages that, that, that read that way and um, that people could use to, to teach universalism or that they could use to um, object at least to the limited nature of Christ's atoning work. And so um, we want to think about some of those verses so that we can use them and use them properly. Um, and, you know, I don't know where the best place to start is necessarily, but we're going to start with 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, we read, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who did for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised. Um, So this passage is talking about all those for whom Christ died that all those for whom he died are dead with him unto sin and self in order that they may no longer live for self, but for him who died and rose for their sakes. And so then the question is, who is the for all that Paul is referring to here? Um, Does it mean all people um, or does it mean all universally? Um, And one of the things that we have to often do with Paul is recognize that Paul speaks in very intentional ways. He's a very clear pointed person. It's very hard at times to take Paul's writings and apply them widely. Usually Paul is talking about one particular thing um, when he's preaching, and so it always behooves us to remember that, that Paul, Paul does, does things in a very precise way. It's not a scattergun approach. Um, one, of our, one of our professors in seminary, Dr. Berksma, said that uh, Paul hunts heresy with a rifle, not a shotgun. Um, He shoots at it directly, and he hits what he aims at. He doesn't try to scatter it. So usually, he's making very direct arguments about something. And so we look to the direct argument he's making and think about who he's talking to and what he's talking about. Um, Now, we have to notice that Paul does say, for all, but he also starts that passage by saying, by talking to us, right? So the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, Um, Paul is speaking to the church, right? Paul is speaking to the people of God in that passage. Um, It's a similar way he talks in Romans 6. Um, Romans 6, 5 through 11, we read, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, 
we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's an all there too, but it's clear that Paul is talking to us, right? To the church, to those who believe in Jesus and are part of his community. Um, so he's not speaking about all people broadly. He's, spoke, he's speaking about us. And if we went back up to the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5, we would recognize that it begins with, with talking to us. You know, we who are waiting for, uh, to put off this spiritual tent and come to our heavenly home. Um, that, that's where we are being addressed there. So when Paul comes and says, for all, he's clearly not meaning all people. He's talking about all of the church there. Um, all those who truly share in Christ. Because it certainly can't be said for all people um, that they live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. Um, that, that's not true of all people. Um, it's true of those who believe and who've been given the gift of faith. And so clearly... That, this passage can't be talking that he died for all people because, it, because the, the passage starts by addressing us, right? Um, this is the all that Paul is, is talking about, that he died for all of us, we might say. Um, so we can do that. And again, I think this is key to thinking of some of these for all passages. Another one is 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. Um, here too we have a reference to, to all. Um, we read, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Um, and so who is the for all that's referenced here? Well, this is where we need to go back to the world. Oftentimes we saw that when the world was brought up, it meant an undif the undifferentiated class of people. Um, that it could be all people or all classes of people. That Christ didn't just come for the Jews, but he came for the Jews and the Gentiles. He came for the whole world. Um, that was often the way it was used. And, and for all can also be used that way um, by, by Paul in other, in other respects. And that's, I think, how he's using it here. All people um, as a class to say he died for all in terms of anyone who believes, right? That, that anyone can be saved by the, by the ransoming death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that, that's clearly how he's been talking about all people in 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy 2 begins, First of all then, I urge that, all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And I think this all that comes in, in 1 Timothy uh, 2, 4, desires all people to be saved, that's the same all people we are to pray for, right? That we're to pray for all people, that God desires all people to be saved. Um, it doesn't inc include or exclude anyone because of their rank or their standing in the world. But if anyone is going to be saved, they have to come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? That, that, that's a crucial part of what Paul says there. Desire all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, that he talks about the, the scope of salvation and the manner of salvation there. 
right? Desires all people, that's the scope. And then what is the manner of saving? That they come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, So it can't just be this universal application to all people because it's qualified by those who come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, The manner of salvation is important there as well. So they're being exhorted not to limit the gospel narrowly to the Jewish people only, an idea that would exclude Gentiles from salvation, Um, and nor are they to do what some Greeks did under Gnostic ideas, which limited salvation to an elite special few who'd obtained the extra knowledge. Um, And the extra knowledge was usually available at an extra price. Right? And so there were people who went around and said, you know, I've got special knowledge for you. And for only three low payments of $29.95, and if you act now, we'll slash one of those payments off. You too can know the secret knowledge. That's kind of how they trafficked in secret knowledge. And that's that's what the Apostle John hates, and that's why he wrote his first epistle, to come to those people and to say, now look, I was with Jesus. I saw him, I heard him, I touched him, we learned with him, we walked with him, we ate with him, and I'm telling you, there is no secret knowledge. There's only what he revealed to us and what we reveal to everyone. Right? If you say you're not a sinner, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. There's no secret knowledge. John says, I was there. If there was secret knowledge to be had, I'd have it. There isn't. There's one truth for anyone to believe. And so it's not to be limited in terms of Jew and Gentile. It's not to be limited in terms of the elite and the lowly. Right? It's, it's for all people um, to come to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's emphasizing that mankind as a whole needs to come to God on the same terms. Right? Really, again, the simple message that we, that we preach this morning should have been a simple message. If it wasn't, it was my fault. Um, but the simple message is that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that God has provided us a Savior in Jesus Christ. And that if we put our faith and trust in him, we can know that he's provided us everything we need to be saved. Right? That, that's the same way everyone needs to be saved. There's no one who doesn't need that Savior, who isn't that sinner, um, and can be saved in any other way. There's only one name given among men by which you must be saved if you're going to be saved, right? There's only one way, one truth, one life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. That's the message we bring. To all people, that one method, that one manner of being saved. It's for everyone, it's the only way, and that's what we're to emphasize. No matter who you are, um, because God loves what he's made, he sent his son into the world to save sinners. Right? He, he sends his son to be the savior of all people. We'll talk about that later. Um, because he loves the world that he's made. He so loves the world that he didn't leave it in the ruin into which it plunged itself. You know, he could have done that, right, with no injustice. We talked about that earlier. He could have said, I made this very good. You've made it very bad. And now you can live with your decision." You can live with the consequences of what you've done. Uh, But in his love, he looked and said, no, they can't live with the consequences of what they'll do. They'll die in what they've done. And there's no one who can save them but me. And so I'm going to save them. Um, That's a testimony to his character, to his goodness, to his grace. Um, 
And he says, the whole world that I love, I offer my son. He's the ransom for all people. Um, and so everyone who believes, whoever who hears the message can be sure that if you believe, you're going to be saved by him. Um, he came to, not to serve, but not to be, be served. I did that today too. I'm going to work on that. Um, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, that's what Jesus came to do. And all people can hear that word, that the world is to be saved, but it has to be saved through him. Um, and that, that's what it means, you know, when Titus says something like, which is another one, Titus 2.11. When Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Um, Again, we could say, all right, for for all people. Um, So is is Paul changing his mind about the scope of salvation? And here too, this is one of those examples where the context is important to help understand what's going on. I often say if you drop in on one text that's confusing, go get a running start and come at it. Go back a chapter and read your way into that verse and see if it makes more sense in the context in which it comes. So let, let's turn to Titus 2 and read this in its context. Um, so, so Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. So some people, some people will point to that and say, okay, clearly this is what Titus is saying. He came to save all people. So that must be universal, uh, indiscriminate. But, but notice what, what, what he's been doing throughout. All right, it's not going to help me to read Titus from 2 Timothy. Um, notice what he's doing throughout chapter 2. Um, who is he talking to? He's talking to all sorts of people. Right? So, but as for you... Teach what accords a sound doctrine. That's to the pastor. Um, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Uh, that's for the older men in the congregation. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So who's been addressed in that passage? The pastor first, and, and the pastor's been told how you're to teach the people um, and how you're to relate to the people, right? So, and then he goes through, now here's what you're to tell the older men to be and the older women to be and the, older, the younger men to be and the younger women to be and the slaves to be. And then what does he say? For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see what he's done. He said, pastors, do this. Titus, do this in the way you relate to people. Tell the older people to do this. Tell the younger people to do this. Tell the slaves to do this. And 
Why? Because the grace of God has appeared for all people. So it doesn't matter what category you find yourself in. If you're a pastor, the grace of God has appeared for you. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slaves, all of them, the grace of God has appeared for them. You see why context is important to see why Paul is arguing the way he argues. And as he argues his way out of that, it can't be for all people. Because he, he talks about what, what, it, what it is to live the kind of life that God calls us to live. Um, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people. A people. He came for a people. Now, all people can be part of his people. Um, but he died for his people. Um, and so what, what is the all in Titus 2? Well, it's just it's tying together everything that came before it. And if you read through the scriptures, that's very common when you have these kinds of lists that address a variety of people. Um, Peter does this as well, addresses a variety of different people, husbands, wives, goes through that, and then he says, but all of you live this way. Right? And that's a very common thing. And so that, that's what's happening here. Paul's just tying together what he's been saying and still addressing the church, right? He's addressing the pastor of the church, um, but how he's to relate to people in the church. Um, and so that, doesn't, that shouldn't give us any you know, difficulty. Uh, whatever class you belong to, the, the grace of God has appeared for you. Um, teaching us all, all of us, to renounce ungodliness for who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Um, that he came to, to redeem us. So um, I'm just going to... Anybody have any questions so far? <laughs> I'm just going to keep going and hope I steamroll everybody and don't have any tough questions. Although I may, in doing so, break the part of Titus I just read as the pastor. Okay. Um, next one that's tough and the one maybe that's often cited is 1 Timothy 4.10. Um, people often will bring, will bring this passage up. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Okay? Talk yourself out of that one, Pastor. Um, he's the Savior of all people, especially them that believe. Now, what, what is going on here? Um, well, you know, all people, that's, that's, you know, we can just go back to what we said before about, you know, in undifferentiated whole. All people, right? Okay, fine. But what about especially those who believe? That's where it gets a little tougher. Um, what, is, what is Paul doing there when he says, especially those who believe? Um, and, you know, Calvin interestingly says, it ought to be understood that this is an argument drawn from the less to the greater. For the word savior here is a general term and denotes one who defends and preserves. He means that the kindness of God extends to all men, particularly those who believe. I think that's a good way to look at it. It's especially a good way to look at it if you understand something about the Ephesus in which Timothy ministered. Um, and and this, this is an insight by, by those who really understand the context in which the ministry is done. Timothy is ministering in Ephesus. Um, and Ephesus was a place where if you walked around, you saw inscriptions everywhere. There were inscriptions to Caesars, there were inscriptions to gods, there were inscriptions to dead people that were, that were revered, um, and there were, there were inscriptions everywhere. And often the inscriptions said 
of emperors in particular, that they were viewed as gods and they were viewed as saviors. Um, and so you would go around Ephesus and read all of these inscriptions that this guy was a savior. He was the one who looked out for people. Um, and it was sometimes said of the emperor or the Caesar that he was the savior of the whole world. Uh, that he was the guy who looked out for the whole world. Um, and so it's as if Paul is using that as a polemic, um, using that to say, actually, there's only one person who looks out for the whole world. Um, God is the only savior of the world. God is the only God who's defending and preserving the world that he's made. There's, there's one God, there's one king over all, and that's the Lord. He's the savior of all. Um, doc, Dr. Baugh at seminary is an expert on Ephesus, and he said, that you can see from inscriptional evidence from Ephesus that the dead emperors were viewed as gods and saviors because they cared for Ephesians in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. Taken in this light, Timothy 4.10 is revealed to be a polemical aside aimed at the false veneration of men who were no longer living, yet who were publicly honored as gods and saviors upon Ephesian inscriptions. And you see, you see, it's sort of like when Paul walks through and says, you know, I see you're very religious and you have an altar here to the un unknown God. Um, you know, th those were the Hail Mary altars where you would have some, you know, plague that would break out. And so you go like, oh, Zeus, help us. Okay, Zeus isn't interested. Apollo, help us. And you'd kind of run through them. And then you would say, well, maybe there's one that we missed and he's angry and that's why this is happening. So, you know, if you're out there and upset, we're sorry. Here's an altar for you. Um, and what does Paul do when he walks through? He says, all right, you have an altar to the unknown God. I see you're very religious. What you worship as unknown, let me tell you who that God really is. Um, he uses that as a springboard in the context of where he's ministering to speak the truth. And Paul's doing the same thing in Ephesus. All around, I see references to the Savior of the world. Do you want to know who the Savior is? There's only one God who's the Savior of the world, who defends and preserves the world, and is especially the defender and preserver of those who believe in his name. God cares for the whole world, but he particularly especially cares for his people. Um, that, that's what's being said in 1 Timothy 4.10, um, that, that God is the one who defends and preserves the whole world, um, especially his people. So that, that's, I think, the best way to take that. And understood in that light, you see what Paul's doing. He's ministering in the context where he lives. He's talking to Timothy in the language that his people will understand and saying, Here, here's what you say to them. They're looking all around and they see everywhere in their city inscriptions to the Savior. There's only one Savior. God is the Savior of the world. And he's especially the, care, the God who cares and keeps for his own who believe in his name. Um, and so that, that's what Paul is doing there um, is making that kind of argument. Does that make sense? Um, okay. Well, good, because that's one of the tougher ones. So if you're persuaded, I'm just going to move on. Um, so, okay, then we have uh, Hebrews 2.9 is another one. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, here, Jesus has tasted death for everyone. How are we to take uh, that 
everyone. Well, in, in context, if someone wanted to say, isn't that universal salvation? He died and he tasted death for everyone. Um, can't we take it that way? Well, again, we'd have, to keep, we'd have to keep reading. Just sometimes the way you need to take a running start to a text, sometimes you need to keep reading. Um, and it becomes clear as it goes on who's being spoken of. So if we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we read verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Um, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Um, how many sons and daughters are included here? But how many sons and daughters does he bring to glory? Many. Right, so that, that's, a, that's a limiting term right then, or a, a particular term, we should probably say, um, a particular term for whom he died. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, who is he doing these things for? Right? Well, verse 10, he says he's the author of their salvation for those that he has brought to glory. Right? So those are those who are saved. Uh, those who are sanctified, those who are his family, his brothers and sisters, um, those he's delivered from slavery to fear and death. Um, so clearly, that, that all there shouldn't give us any trouble when we keep reading through and it's making clear he made propitiation for his people, for his family, for those who the Father gave him, for those he was delivering out of death, for those he was sanctifying, for those he was glorifying. That's not the whole world. That's his people. Um, and so the all there can't be read in a universalist sense because of what follows makes it clear of who he's living and dying for. Um, John Murray, thinking about this text, said, this text shows how plausible offhand quotation may be, and yet how baseless is such an appeal in support of the doctrine of universal atonement. Um, that's important for universal atonement and for a lot of other things in the Bible. That offhand quotation can seem like it makes sense until you actually read it in context and, and learn what it says. Um, I remember years ago, Jake Peavy, who pitched for the Padres, every time before he would throw a pitch, he would recite, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he would throw his pitch. Um, now, I'm glad that he believes in, in Jesus, and I'm glad that he believes that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Um, I'm not trying to, to belittle the man's faith or anything like that. But that text is not about throwing a good slider, 
um, or getting your curveball over for a strike, right? That, that's not what that passage is about. Um, and we can, you know, if, if, we, if we don't use that correctly, does that mean if you don't throw the, the curveball or if you hang it and they hit it for a home run that you couldn't do all things through Christ who strengthened you? Um, well, no, you know, that wouldn't be the right application of that, of that text. Um, so I'm picking on poor Jake Peavy, who's not even pitching anymore. Um, but I think he's got a lot of money, so I think he'll be okay. Um, and he's a Christian, so even better. But, you know, you see the point, right? You can take a text out of its context and stretch it beyond the bounds of what the Lord has intended it to say and make it say something he didn't intend to say and get yourself in trouble thereby. And we don't want to do that. We want to try to understand it in its context so that we can rightly apply the Word of God and understand it in, in, the, in the way it's intended and not make those kinds of mistakes. Um, because you'll run into people who have, you know, listen to one verse and have a terrible theology about that one verse, and that can do a lot of damage. Uh, my mom, when she was 11 years old, went to a, she grew up as a, as a Baptist, and she went to a, a youth camp, and the, they had, you know, the altar call at the end of the thing, and everybody was coming forward, and she thought, well, I don't need to come to the altar call because I've already been baptized, so I've already given my life to the Lord, and so he's clearly calling people who haven't given their lives to the Lord yet, and so this guy, you know, called these kids to come forward. And then after he was like, all right, does anybody else want to come forward? Like, now's your opportunity. And when no one else came forward, he said, all right, all of you who didn't come forward have committed the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. And so my mom said, I, you know, I, I had to carry this, like, weight as an 11-year-old of thinking that because I hadn't come forward, I'd committed the sin against the Holy Spirit and that I couldn't be saved, Right, And so, you know, mercifully, after carrying this for a while, she talked to her dad, who told her that's not true, and I think he was looking to go kill that guy um, for saying that, because, you know, it would be better for you to have a millstone thrown around your neck and sunk in the sea than to lead the little ones astray, as Jesus said. Um, but, you know, the point is, you can take a text out of context and work a lot of wickedness through it. That was an evil thing to say to children. Um, nobody should have said that to anybody. And it's just, it's just the way you can misuse the Word of God and, and work a lot of damage through it. Um, that's why it's important for us to understand the Word of God, to apply the Word of God rightly in the sense that God wants it applied. And that's why we need to constantly be testing our interpretation of God's Word against His Word um, and letting the more clear passages interpret the less clear. Because if you let these texts alone determine what you're going to do, even though we've seen there's an explanation for them considered in of themselves, um, it becomes a lot more certain what they mean when you, when you read other passages of Scripture that make it clear. Not everybody is saved by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, only those who put their faith and trust in Him. There are people who die in their sins. There are people who die under the wrath of God. So these can't mean what some people would take them to mean. Um, and you could run into the problem that we talked about this morning in terms of if you're saying to people Jesus died for you um, and not doing it in the way that the scriptures talk about how you apply that truth and what you call people to do, you can leave a whole group of people thinking that they're fine with God when they're not. I remember talking to a minister who ministered among the homeless and he said one of the biggest problems I have is people who've gone through homeless encampments and taught them the sinner's prayer and told them that if you pray the sinner's prayer, you're saved. 
He said, because I come to them and they don't have any meaningful belief in Christ. They're not living in any way connected with him. But they'll say to me when I try to preach the gospel to them, no, no, a guy already came through and told me that if I prayed the prayer, I pray the prayer and I'm good. I prayed the prayer, I'm good. Like, I don't need what you're talking about because he promised me. I pray the prayer, I'm in. Right? And you can do damage that way if you're not teaching the whole counsel of God. What does God want? God wants us to, to repent of our sins, to put our faith and trust in Christ, and to live a life of grateful obedience, to observe what he commanded us to do. And so that's why it's important for us to take these, these verses and to rightly apply them. Um, I've got one more, 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Um, and so people have pointed out to this passage as maybe teaching that Jesus died for all or that all are saved. Um, of course, the emphasis of this passage is on the long-suffering patience of our God. Um, because people have made either two arguments, that he's either way too slow in coming and that everything is, because he's not coming, that everything is going on just the way it's always been. Um, that's kind of sometimes the challenge we have when we say, you know, Jesus is coming again soon, which we hold on to as the hope, right? That Jesus is coming again soon in glory. And then someone will say, but you said that, and, you know, presumably John used to say that to people 1,900 years ago. Um, so where is the promise of his coming? Well, we see from this passage, it doesn't matter if you're 60 years away from it or 1,900 years away from it, people say the same thing. Where is the promise of his coming? Um, and this, this passage is, is answering that question. Where is the promise of his coming? Because the scoffers are sitting there saying, you know, you're saying he's coming, but the world's always gone on the same way. You know, you say there's this, this cataclysmic judgment coming, but since the beginning of the world, it's always gone on the same way. Like, there's never been a cataclysmic judgment. Why should we worry about one coming? And what Peter does in 2 Peter 3 is say, actually, you're wrong about that. There has already been a cataclysmic judgment once. All mankind was wiped off the face of the earth with a deluge of water. God has already warned us one time that this was going to happen. He promised he would never do that again until the end comes. But Peter said, look, you jokers who think that the world has always gone on the same way, you're wrong about that. It's been wiped out once before. And you know the only way that they survived was in the ark that God provided for them? It was only God who could deliver them through judgment. And the people of God of the Red Sea understood that too, where God split the water and delivered them through the judgment. Um, those are the two places to go if you really want to annoy your Baptist friends, to say who got sprinkled at the Red Sea and who got immersed. Israel got sprinkled and Pharaoh got immersed. Um, who got sprinkled in the flood? Noah got sprinkled. Um, friends got immersed. It's not a nice thing to do, your Baptist friends, but you can do it. It's fun. Um, you know, don't be a jerk about it, but tongue-in-cheek, you can always have a little bit of fun with them. But that's actually the point that Peter makes. God has always been a God who delivers through judgment. Um, he delivered Noah through the flood. He delivered the people of God through the Red Sea. 
Now, when the judgment comes that consumes the heavens and the earth in fire, who's going to deliver you through the fire? Because to get more serious, Peter says, all you jokers who are saying the world's never been destroyed and so you're not really worried about the judgment that's coming, you better realize that the world was once destroyed with water, the earth was destroyed with water, but what's coming will destroy the heavens and the earth with fire. And what's going to save you from that? You can't build an ark for that. Right? There's no app for that. There's only one person who can deliver you through the judgment. And Peter's argument here is don't mistake what God is doing. Don't mistake his work for slowness. Don't, don't mistake what he's doing for what you think he's doing. He's not slow as you count slowness. This is a testimony to his patience as he's gathering his people um, because he wants people to be saved. Uh, Calvin says, So wonderful is his love toward mankind that he would have them all to be saved and is of his own self prepared to, to bestow salvation on the lost. But the order is to be noticed that God is ready to receive all to repentance so that none may perish for in these words, the way and manner of salvation is pointed out. Every one of us, therefore, who is desirous of salvation must learn to enter by this way. The text speaks only of his will as made known to us in the gospel. For God in the gospel stretches forth his hand without a difference to all. But lays hold only of those to lead them to himself who he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. Isn't that lovely? This is, this is a picture of the gospel in the hand of our God. He's not slow. He's not slow as we count slowness. He's patient. And what is he doing in this world? He's extending his hand to anyone who will have it. Now, yes, there's things that happen in the eternal decrees of God. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the gospel in the world until the Lord comes. People are saying, oh, he's never going to come. Peter says, that's not what he's doing right now. He's not slow. What he's doing is patiently holding out his hand to you and saying, come before it's too late. He, he's laying out the goodness of our God and the manner by which we must be saved by taking hold of the Son of God. Um, because he's loving towards the world, not willing that any should perish, uh, but that all should reach repentance. This is not about universalism or undermining a particular atonement. Now, this is talking about the goodness of our God. Yeah. Yeah, that already in Genesis 3.15, in the first announcement of the gospel, there is this, this promise. But you know, even there you see, you see the, the goodness of our God extended in that when Adam and Eve are called, you know, did you do what I told you not to do? They, it's a terrible confession of faith, right? It's a, it's a terrible confession of sin, I should say. When you come and say, all right, did I do it? Yes, but, right, children are good at this. And, well, um, my nephew, you always know when he's about to tell you a story because it starts always with, well, um, hey, who broke this? Well, um, you know, you just know it's coming, right? <laughs> he's, Okay, well, we know who did this. Um, and that's what Adam and Eve did when they got in trouble, right? Well, did I eat of the tree? Technically, yes, I did. But you have to understand, it's the woman that you gave me that made me do it. Um, 
right, did you do that? Well, you, I did it, but you have to understand it was the serpent that made me do it. So if you think about it, it's actually what you've done in making the serpent in the marriage that made this kind of happen. After all, you put the tree in the garden. You know, it's, it's a terrible confession of sin. It's not one we would encourage, but it is a confession of sin. And so when God pronounces a curse, he curses the serpent, and he looks at the man and said, cursed are your labors. And he looks at the woman and said, cursed are your labors. But what doesn't he say? Cursed are you. He accepts their confession of faith, uh, their confession of sin, even though it's not a perfect confession. And then he goes out and makes a sacrifice for them, the animals, and clothes them in animal skins. Fast forward to when Cain kills his brother, and God comes to him and says, what have you done? Where is your brother? Giving him the same opportunity to confess his sin. And what does he say to God? Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, cursed are you. Right? There's the difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed who lives on account of the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent and those who belong to the serpent. And the first announcement of the gospel, like he pointed out in Genesis 3.15 is, you've tried to make friends with the devil and I'm going to make enmity between you and the devil, between your offspring and her, and her offspring. Yes, he's going to strike your heel, but you're going to crush his head. Um, so yeah, even back in the beginning, there is this division, and that's, that's what God is saying. But he holds out to all those who are, he holds that out to Cain, that's what he's doing there. He said, I know, you know, God doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answer. He asks questions to try to provoke in us a response that he's looking for. And that was Cain's opportunity to confess his sin before God and be saved. And, and he said, I'm on my brother's keeper. All right, cursed are you. Um, you, you have the devil's fate, because that's what it said to the devil. Cursed are you. Um, and that's, the, that's what Peter's saying. This is the choice that the gospel puts before all of us. Um, but God would rather show mercy than justice. That's what he says in his word. I don't delight in the death of the wicked. Um, he wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth, but they have to come in the way and manner of salvation that God has pointed out in his word. Um, so if we've seen and know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be thankful that we've been delivered out of the judgment that we deserve despite the pathetic confessions of sin that we offer. So let's go to our God and thank him for our salvation. Father in heaven, we have been reminded in your word of your great goodness to all people that salvation has appeared, that anyone who hears the extension of the gospel might know that you love them and that you've sent your, the Lord Jesus Christ to die for them and that they can have part in that salvation. We pray, Lord, for many who don't know you, that they would come to a knowledge of the truth, that they would repent of their sins and put their faith in, in Christ before it's too late, before the judgment does fall from which only he can save us. Um, and we stand amazed, Lord, that you should have shown such great love to us that you would uh, make known Jesus Christ to us that we might believe in him and be saved. We thank you for uh, that sovereign act of goodness on your part, for the grace that you've given to us. Pray that we would uh, rejoice in that grace today and rest secure in the promises of Christ. Help us and hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.